Hi, and welcome to the AHG podcast. My name is Brad Winnie, and I'm here today um, with Dr. Terry Redman, and we're going to be talking about bioterrorism and how it relates to environmental services. Dr. Terry, why don't you explain your background to us? I am a nurse by background, um, and all of my degrees all the way through my PhD are in nursing. My background primarily has been in infectious diseases, and then as my career developed, um, I started to focus on disaster preparedness, specifically as it focuses on infectious disease disasters. So I study and teach and do research related to um, bioterrorism, emerging infectious diseases like Ebola and Zika, and then also um, pandemics. like. Why don't we just ask, what is bioterrorism? Sure. Um, bioterrorism is the intentional use of a biological agent to inflict harm or death onto a population. So in other words, instead of um, using a bomb or using um, a chemical weapon of some kind, it's when the bad guys, the terrorists, use biological agent or disease. Like, so like anthrax, plague, smallpox, etc. How do you think that would relate and... Um, and, and work into the environmental services side of healthcare. So the, the biggest concern for environmental services is going to be when we have a disease that's in the bioterrorism attack that has um, that's able to be spread by the indirect contact route. In other words, if it's a disease that can contaminate the environment and lead to secondary spread. So there are um, some diseases are spread by direct contact, meaning you have to either have direct contact with somebody's infectious bodily fluids um, or like their respiratory secretions, for example. And then other diseases um, are spread by the indirect contact route, meaning that there can be an inanimate object between the person that's infected and susceptible individuals. And that's really where environmental services comes into play. Because if the environment is contaminated and that um, it's what we call a, a fomite, if that fomite um, can lead to secondary spread, then environmental services is going to be critical to make sure that we decontaminate the environment and clean the environment to prevent that secondary spread from occurring. And then I'm going to guess that depending on the biological attack, there might be different ways to take care of that as an environmental services profession? So it all depends on what agent or disease um, was used in the attack. So a bioterrorism attack involving anthrax is going to look very different than a bioterrorism attack involving smallpox, plague, or Ebola. And so it really, um, and, and that's going to change the type of actions that environmental services need to take in order to uh, reduce that environmental contamination and reduce secondary spread. What do you think the occupational risks associated with those and an environmental services technician um, would have to uh, protect themselves or be concerned about? So the occupational risk is, again, going to depend on the disease. Because, um, so I'll use a couple of examples, so I'm not just talking very broadly. Um, if we have an anthrax attack, for instance, people that are infected with anthrax, regardless of what kind of anthrax disease they have, because you can have cutaneous, which is a skin form of the disease, gastrointestinal, which is a gastrointestinal form of the disease, and then inhalational, which is what happens when you inhale the spores. Um, regardless of which kind of anthrax you have, none of those forms are communicable, meaning they're not spread from person to person. So in that regard, the, an infected patient with anthrax is not a risk to other people around them. So because that person isn't a risk, they're not shedding the anthrax into their environment. So environmental services role is going to be basically what they would do with any other patient because the patient's not going to be on isolation and there's really going to be no special procedures that need to be performed. Um, it's going to look very different if, if we have, let's say, a bioterrorism attack involving smallpox. 
um, because smallpox is a very communicable disease. It's easy to spread from person to person, and the environment plays a role in secondary spread. In fact, historically, um, environmental services were one of the highest risk groups um, from smallpox outbreaks. And part of the reason for that is that the smallpox rash that develops, um, it actually sheds that virus out into the environment, and particularly into the individual's clothing and into their um, bed linens. And so the environmental services individuals that would be taking care of those bed linens um, would be exposed to smallpox from handling those linens. And so there was a very high um, morbidity and mortality rate among uh, EVS historically with smallpox. Do you see that there's a little bit of... um, uh continuation with other um, diseases, so to speak? Or is there some parallel between what we do normally with uh, bioterrorism? Or is there some special things that we need to look out for? For for many of the bioterrorism scenarios, um, it really is going to sort of be routine practice. Because if they're not spread by the indirect contact route, so if the environment is not a risk for secondary spread, then the um, the EVS work would be essentially what it is for any other patient in a healthcare environment. Um, it's really those diseases that do um, that are related to or do have secondary spread that's related to a fomite, where EVS is going to be absolutely critical. And then EVS's role is so important because it not only is going to prevent other people from getting infected, it's also going to cut down on their risk of occupational exposure and infection as well. So how do you think environmental services need to protect themselves then that would kind of cover a lot of different routine cases or the biological attacks? One of the most important things that they can do is be really well-versed in routine standard cleaning and disinfection practices. Um, because, again, it's it, generally it's sort of business as usual during a bioterrorism attack. However, when we have these um, bioterrorism attacks, or if we ever have a bioterrorism attack that involves something that does have secondary spread, then it's important that they not only have really good standard routine practices down pat, but then they also are able to um, learn very quickly in a just-in-time fashion what we need to do that's different in this particular scenario. Um, And I think Ebola during the 2014-2016 outbreak was a great example, because even though the Ebola crisis was not a bioterrorism attack, um, Ebola is a potential bioterrorism agent, so it could be used in a future bioterrorism attack. And I think the lessons that we learned from the Ebola crisis about the importance of really good um, decontamination, disinfection, and cleaning within healthcare environments... um, that can be applied to a bioterrorism attack. In fact, um, the CDC updated a lot of their um, recommendations related to environmental cleaning and decontamination during the Ebola crisis that also apply to a future bioterrorism attack. So with that, then um, I see a lot of importance on um, being prepared Mm -hmm. and then also having uh, drills to uh, maybe prepare even farther and then also working with other departments in the hospital, so to speak. Absolutely. I mean, drills and exercises are critical so that everyone understands their role during a disaster, regardless of the type of disaster. So even if it's a natural disaster versus bioterrorism, um, really knowing the hospital or the facility's disaster plan is really important, especially for EVS, because um, it from my experience and from working with a lot of different hospital disaster planners, um, they're often left out of hospital disaster plans, exercises, not the plans, but the exercises themselves. And so I think that that's, um, 
a real sort of flaw in a lot of the hospital exercises is that they tend to focus a lot on um, the emergency department staff and they tend to focus less on um, groups um, outside of the emergency department and they don't take into account that EVS is going to play this really critical role um, in the emergency department but also in other parts of the hospital. Another important thing that EVS professionals can do to help protect themselves during a bioterrorism attack is if we have a vaccine available or if we're offering post-exposure prophylaxis, it's really critical that they take that um, because vaccine can be, um, it can be used either in the pre-exposure environment, meaning getting vaccinated now, um, or we can actually use it after an exposure or during an outbreak to try to um, prevent somebody from becoming infected even if they do have an exposure. And we have found that um, the vaccine, especially combined with post-exposure prophylaxis, has really helped to reduce morbidity and mortality. So that would be really critical for EVS staff as well. Maybe the biological agent hasn't been identified yet and patients are coming in, they don't know. And being prepared and, and having set protocols are very important because that way of course, we don't know what's going to happen during a bioterrorism attack, right? I mean, my crystal ball is a little foggy these days. But what we think is going to happen is that it's probably not going to be an announced attack. Like, they're not, the bad guys are not going to say, hey, we just blew anthrax over your city. Like, that's probably not going to happen. So what's likely to occur is that individuals are going to get sick from their exposure, show up in the healthcare environment, and then we have to figure out what disease they have and then how to... Um, control that and prevent it from infecting other individuals. So in that kind of an environment, it, in some ways it's similar to what we see every day, that we have patients that come into the emergency department or even come into um, outpatient areas, and we don't know what disease they have. And so we need to very quickly decide um, how we th what disease we think they might have or how that disease might be transmitted, and then use appropriate control measures to try to um, prevent disease spread. One of the challenges that we see um, in hospitals across the United States, and research has demonstrated this as well, is that um, in general, many staff wait until we actually have confirmation of disease before they implement a lot of sort of standard infection prevention protocols. And when that happens, what we end up happening is we have um, occupational exposures that could have been prevented. So a good recommendation is that if you if you look at the symptoms that the person has and think about what disease they might have and how that might be spread, you can then use sort of standard infection prevention protocols up front, even before we have confirmation of disease, um, to try to reduce occupational exposure and also exposure to other people in the hospitals. So for example, if somebody appears to have a sort of upper respiratory symptom, so it looks like they have, you know, um, a cough or they're sneezing and they have sort of those typical respiratory symptoms, even if you don't know what disease they have, you could sort of, um, you could assume, well, it might be spread by respiratory droplets. And so if that's the case, putting on a mask when you go into the room is going to protect you. It doesn't hurt the patient for you to put on the mask, and it's really protecting you from the occupational exposure and possibly um, spreading that to someone else, um, including um, a household member or a family member. So if the EVS professional becomes ill, they can accidentally take that home to their families, which, of course, we don't want to happen. And I think having the procedures and the drills and EVS professionals are out there, they, they know what to do, and, and no matter what the case might end up be, they're still at least protected and will kind of reduce the occupational hazards regarding it. And I think communicating with the healthcare staff, if, if they believe that there is a risk, 
um, about what kind of um, extra precautions they might need. So one thing that we've seen historically um, is that when we have either bioterrorism attacks or um, even outbreaks of emerging infectious diseases, is that the CDC will change their recommendations midway through an event. Um, because the science on a lot of these diseases is not fully established, so we're constantly learning more about the epidemiology and how the diseases are spread. And so midway through an event, we might change protocols. Um, so it's important for EVS to be aware of what the current recommendations and protocols are so that they're following the correct procedures to protect themselves and protect others. But it can be very confusing for them when we change, um, and by we I mean sort of the, the generic we, like when, when the CDC or the healthcare field or public health comes out and says, okay, I know you were doing X, Y, and Z with this patient or even this disease two weeks ago, but now we're going to switch and we're going to do this. That can be very confusing for individuals. And so I think it's really important to communicate why we're making those changes and it's to protect them from occupational exposure and to protect other people in the hospital. And we are making those decisions based on um, the best science that we have today. And of course, science is constantly evolving. So. so thank you, Terry. I appreciate your answers today. And it really helps us as environmental services professionals be more prepared and hopefully won't have to ever deal with in our careers. Thanks for having me, Brad. I enjoyed it. Um, and, and for our AHE members, um, we appreciate you being here today. And um, thanks for joining.